This is a 720 to go podcast from Chicago's WGN Radio 720. This podcast is sponsored by ADM. As one of the world's largest agricultural processors, ADM is uniquely positioned to serve the world's growing needs for abundant food and renewable energy. ADM. When it comes to the business of America's farmland, you need the information from the people who know it best. That's why we bring you AgriCast with Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong. Good morning again and welcome to the Saturday morning show. Ten minutes after five o'clock, 28 degrees on the thermometer outside my studio in Huntley, Illinois. So I hope you covered the plants last night. We're going to talk about that with Jim in just a half a minute or so. But uh, that's the weather story we have, and it's not going to warm up too much today. But uh, I think the corn that's out of the ground uh, will survive without any problem, and uh, it's just the flowers and uh, maybe the early vegetables. But instead of my talking about it, we'll let Jim Pazell talk about it. So let me start with a little bit of good news because we keep hearing all of the uh, pandemic news that has everybody concerned. But I like this story. The U.S. Department of Agriculture approved $1.2 billion in contracts for the Farmers to Families Food Box Program designed to connect excess meat, dairy, and produce on farms with families who are facing food insecurity. The funding far exceeds the $100 million per month the department initially planned for the program due to high interest and need. The program will purchase $461 million in fresh fruits and vegetables, $317 million in dairy products, $258 million in meat, and $175 million in a combination box of fresh produce, dairy, or meat products. The American Farm Bureau Federation and Feeding America, the country's largest hunger relief organization, sent a letter to uh, the USDA requesting an easier approach to quickly and effectively get food from America's farms to the nation's food banks and others that are working on food insecurity. And uh, let me share with you what Zippy Duval, the president of the American Farm Bureau Federation, had to say yesterday. He said, we applaud the USDA for its quick action and flexibility in finding a way to get food from America's farms to the dinner tables of those who need it most. These food purchases will help the hungry while providing income to farmers and ranchers who have seen some markets for their food disappear during the COVID-19 pandemic. The American Farm Bureau and Feeding America were among the first to call for a quick solution that links farmers with the nation's food banks, USDA's responsiveness, and the early success of the food box program give hope to those in need and to farmers who have food ready to be harvested. Because I've received so many emails and phone calls from listeners who say, if we've got all this food out here, why do we dump the milk? And why do we have to plow under the produce and and uh, all of the other food sources that we have? 
and the challenge has been the processing part of the food chain because of the COVID-19 attack on workers at meatpacking plants uh, throughout the country. But we do have some good news on that front, too, this morning, because a lot of those closed meat processing plants are going to be opening up. Some of them opened uh, late this week, but uh, more of them will be opening next week. So we'll get that chain going again. But uh, hopefully we're learning something. We're learning that we can't take agriculture for granted. And we're learning that we have to pay attention to it. And uh, we're coming into the planting season. As a matter of fact, making pretty good progress on planting the crop for this year. And we'll get the next weekly report on Monday. But uh, we are working on it. And uh, I'm glad to hear from some people. Last uh, night, uh, we did the second Zoom visit with the uh, listeners to the John Williams show when he auctioned off an appearance by Zoom with John and me. And uh, we did two of those uh, Zooms this week on Wednesday and Friday. And uh, the winners, because of the money that they bid to the uh, uh, Restaurant Workers Relief Fund, uh, they said, yeah, we better uh, start appreciating what we do on the farms and ranches of the country a little bit more because we're finding out, really finding out, how dependent we are on that food chain that is so efficient and effective. But the last thing farmers want to do is to euthanize animals that have been fed for processing or plow crops underneath because they've got an investment in that. They've got money invested in seed and in fertilizer and in crop protection chemicals. And if they have to plow it under or dump the milk, they don't get paid for the input they've already put into the crop. So hope you'll understand that. And uh, it's a tough way to uh, have to understand, but uh, pay attention because farmers and ranchers do a lot of work along with the entire food chain that uh, takes the crops from the fields to the processing plants, to the uh, retail outlets, the grocery stores and the supermarkets. Uh, we better appreciate that a whole lot more. We're at uh, 16 minutes after 5 o'clock here on the Saturday Morning Show. It's good to have you along. We always appreciate and enjoy your company. And uh, we've got Jim Fazell standing by with some of those old farmer rules on frost, but then solutions on how to deal with it and handle it. So we'll get to our visit with Jim when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. As we say good morning to Jim Fazell, I have to talk to you about the old farmer's ideas on frost and when you can plant safely and so on, because apparently those old ideas are still working, Jim. They're still working, and it's really amazing how accurate these old-timers really are, because uh, one of the first things they tell you is always expect a freeze on the full at the full moon in May. Well, the full moon was Thursday, and we've had a freeze in outlying areas and frost in the city this morning. So they only missed it by a day. Can you believe that? <laughs> Last week, when I talked, 
said on the air that uh, that that was a thing that you need to follow. One of the things that you need to follow. I got a lot of, oh, do you really think that? Because we've been having temperatures in the 60s and lows at night in the 40s and 50s. Well, see, you can't really rely on what's happening. And you can go back to what these old timers said because they had the experience. One of the other things, they, in fact, our good friend Nick Scoofus, who was a friend of yours and mine, a vegetable grower in Mount Prospect, always said, you never put the tomatoes in the ground until the catalpas have a leaf the size of your hand. If you look at a catalpa tree lately, you no, can barely, <laughs> barely find the leaves. So uh, if, if you want to rely on some of that wisdom, the chances of having another freeze before the catalpas are leaves are the size of your hand may be pretty good. But then again, he, he was planting acres of tomatoes. We're only planting a few in the backyard. So it's it's a different story altogether because we can cover them. Now, now you asked uh, uh, some time ago about what you cover those with. The one thing you don't want to use is plastic because the heat does not is not held in by the plastic. In any place the plastic touches a plant, it's going to freeze if the outside temperatures are freezing. You want to use old blankets, old bed sheets, something cloth, and put it over the plants. Even if it's touching the plants, they should be okay with that. Or if you're worried about weighing the plants down, take some coat hangers out and make yourself some props over them so that they so that the cover doesn't hit the plant itself. Anyway, there are a lot of things that we can do when we have a few plants in the backyard that commercial growers cannot do. Uh, one of the one of the situations that I'm a little bit concerned with, you know, we have a lot of friends and a lot of growers in our area that have annuals out for sale on platforms and beds and so forth outdoors. If they don't have enough to cover some of those things, and if they're in some of these areas where we really have a good freeze, there could be damage to those. So I always worry about these people because they they put these plants out so that people can buy them early because that's when people want them. So there they are. They're sitting out there. You know, we have mutual friends, the Goberts, that have two farms, and they have two garden centers that that uh, have a tremendous amount of plant material out. So that's a concern for them and for us, too, because we don't want any of our, produ- our producers to, to run into damage, especially this year when, when uh, earning a living is pretty dear. Well, you know, uh, you mentioned uh, the Gobert family, and, of course, we're not too far from them. But right. Tom's Market uh, also opened this week, so Gloria got her uh, beautiful flowers, and they're already planted on the back patio. Well, good. And I assume that she has a blanket or something to put over those babies if if frost uh, does occur tonight. Or right. Last, if frost does occur. In fact, it did last night. She had the blankets out last night, by the way? No, but uh, we put the plants near the stone wall of our patio, and that, oh. that tends to hold heat. Good. Well, that's good. Yeah, that's um, that's interesting. You know, uh, all these young people that have these garden centers around this area that you and I know, these were little kids in 4-H when you and I began working with the farm community here in northeastern Illinois. Isn't it hard to believe that some of these have grown up, have grandkids, some of them even great-grandkids there on the farm uh, already? How old are we, Orion? We're not that old, are we? No, no, we're not. Not at all. But we're more mature than we were. Yes, a little bit. The hair is a little more gray, and the glasses are a little thicker, I guess. I anyway, guess. 
One of the things that uh, it's interesting, you know, every week lately, it seems like there's something to celebrate. And we need so- we have something to celebrate this weekend. Of course, it's Mother's Day and uh, mothers like flowers. We just mentioned the garden flowers and so forth. Uh, I recall as a little kid riding my bike to the neighborhood florist and getting a plant for my mother for Mother's Day. I did that for years. And a lot of people do that. In fact, there were a lot of kids that I grew up with that did the same thing. A plant, a potted plant like a hydrangea or an azalea or anything like that that would bring a little joy in, into the life for moms, especially moms that can't get out as much as they have in the past, um, maybe because of the virus, but also moms get older and it's a little more difficult to do that, but also cut flowers. I noticed um, in some of the chain stores, there are beautiful displays of cut flowers, particularly roses. And, you know, roses are pretty dear to my heart because uh, I grew lots of them for commercial roses all over the country for a number of years. But those are beautiful. The prices are good because there's so many of them. And and the growers are glad to get anything for the flowers. And the retailers are not going to jack the prices up so high to make them out of reach for most people. So cut flowers work just as well. But the garden plants that we talked about from the garden center. A lot of moms would like to have a few roses in the backyard or a few geraniums on the front porch or a few marigolds along the walkway. And that can be done very nicely at this time of year, and it's a wonderful gift for mothers. So don't let Mother's Day go by without some plants, flowers, and so forth adding to their lives. Now, into the garden. We haven't talked about the garden yet this morning, and, and time is flying. Um, a couple of things that need to be done right now. One of the things that we, one of the problems that we have with with plant material is leaf spot diseases, particularly on crab apples. Crab apples get a thing called apple scab that that uh, puts black spots, green or black spots, on the leaves, and the leaves begin to fall off. So that by the time we get to late summer, there are no leaves on the trees. They look like they're dead. It's disgusting. One of the things we can do about that is to spray those trees. This time of year, starting right now, as the leaves are just beginning to come out, uh, general fruit spray or spray for fruit trees, uh, you can use all-purpose fruit tree spray, which will control the scab and leaf spots and some insects. Uh, or you, better yet, at this time of year, because a lot of these are already in bloom, you want to use something that does not have an insecticide in it because the insecticides will damage the pollinators, the bees, the flies, the butterflies, and so forth. So if you're going to spray these, plants with them with them in full bloom, you want to be sure that the material that you use is a fungicide, a general purpose fungicide, but no insecticide within it. Now, the other thing we've had some problem with on crabapple trees is fire blade. Uh, with the last two springs that we had, not this spring in particular, but two springs in a row, we had terrible problems with fire blight. The infection is a bacterial disease that takes place as the flowers are in full bloom. The thing to do to prevent that is to spray those things when they're in full bloom with streptomycin sulfate, which can be bought at any garden center under a whole bunch of trade names. It is specifically for use for prevention of fire blight, and you need to read the label or have somebody at the store show you what it is or where it is in order to get the right material. But this is the time to do that when these plants are in full bloom. The crab apples need to be protected because the infection generally takes place through the flower. Now, there are other ways that they can be infected later in the year, but we'll discuss that at another time. Now, 
One other thing that I want to cover this morning, because uh, uh, it's important, we're getting ready to do some planting. We need to decide whether we're going to plant like the farmers do in rows or we're going to plant like the greenhouses do in beds. I really prefer beds for small gardens for a number of reasons. Um, You don't have to dig the whole thing over. It's in the same place each year. Any of the modification that you uh, make to the soils in those particular areas never gets changed from year to year, and you don't walk in the beds compacting them. Uh, One of the things you first of all need to to decide if you're going to grow in beds is that is it going to be sided? Or is it not going to be sided? I have never used sides on the on the beds in my garden, um, but you do need to lay them out, and you do need to identify and define where they are so that you use the same space every year. Uh, maybe you need to make the little map in your garden journal that we generally talk about so that you know exactly where this is, or maybe put some stakes or marks out so that every year you can lay out the bed the same as it is uh, when you when you design the thing. Then let's get to raised beds. We've had some very wet seasons. We're having one periodically now in some parts of our area that are very wet as well. Raised beds allow you to get around the too wet problem because they drain very nicely. They're above ground. You need to make, make the beds uh, uh, with sides that are at least six inches high, maybe a foot high. That'd be double the regular boards that you can buy. It takes a little bit of work to do that. However, it's worth it if you're going to keep them from year to year. A couple of things about beds. They're easier to work. Raised beds are not as low. You don't have to bend over so far. And at our age, it gets a little tougher to get down there, as you know. <laughs> right. Anyway, lay the, bed, lay the beds out uh, to three or three and a half feet wide. Now, you don't want them much wider than that because you want to be able to reach to the middle of them without straining. So three and a half to three feet, uh, three to three and a half feet wide. And as long as the area will allow, if you have room for a bed that's 25 feet long, that's fine. Now, I do know that some people use boxes that are individuals that may be the three and a half feet wide and six feet long, that's fine too. Any way you want to do it. And orienting them east-west or north or south, it's best if they're oriented east-west because the plants get sun all day long, whereas if you align them north-south, you may have shade on them part of the day when the sun's coming up in the morning and then the other part of the day when the sun's out in the west, the east side is not getting anything. So anyway, uh, dig these gardens over. If you're going to have beds that you're digging over, dig them over. If you can dig that two feet, two two spade depths deep, uh, we'll talk about that one of these days, how you double dig. But add organic matter as as you're going. Then align the rows of plants across the beds. Not up and down the beds unless you're only putting one across, what you would do with tomatoes and maybe squash. Anyway, there are some ideas about some things that you can do. Next week, we're going to talk about vertical gardens. How do you get the most out of your space and get as much plant material growing in this, these spaces as you can? And vertical gardens are the way to do that. Have a good Mother's Day weekend. Uh, enjoy things. Even if you can't get out, uh, enjoy the flowers. And spring is here. It's going on, even if it's a little slow this year. But it's going to continue. We need to be ready for it. We will look forward to our conversation with you next week. And uh, hopefully we'll have a good weather week so we can do some of the outdoor work that we need at this time of the year. That's Jim Fazell, our specialist in ornamental horticulture, with us here on the Saturday morning morning show 5:30 here on the Saturday morning show and let me just say a word about green tree services because like so many of you who are 
sheltered at home and something to figure out to do. Uh, Gloria has been doing that. We had green tree services out last week for duct cleaning and for carpet cleaning. And uh, nice people, they do a good job. So good to have them with us here on the air. 5.31 now, and uh, coming up, Samuelson Says. I'm Orion, and this week talking about an unusual summer schedule. Apple Chevrolet knows that these are uncertain and challenging times, and your vehicle should be the least of your worries. That's why they're committed to helping you in any way they can, answering your questions, servicing your vehicle, and even sanitizing it before you drive off the lot. If you need a new vehicle, Apple Chevy is offering interest-free APR financing for an unprecedented 84 months on the Equinox Tracks and Silverados. No payment for 120 days. Schedule an at-home test drive at AppleChevy.com. Apple Chevy cares. Find new roads. I lead off this week, Samuelson says, with another question for you. How many conversations have you had in the last two weeks where COVID-19 and its impact on summertime rural schedules and events haven't been discussed? I have a feeling that every week this summer, I'm going to spend as much time talking about postponements and cancellations as I am talking about important agricultural issues. Let me begin this week with FFA conventions, because we're coming into the June through August period when most states hold their FFA conventions. I've already heard from several states who have changed dates or are going to go a different direction. And one of my concerns besides FFA conventions are county and state fairs, because I feel they are such an important part of our rural history. And let me share with you a conversation I had a couple weeks ago with my friend Andy Grossetta. He's the Arizona cattleman who ranches about 100 miles north of Phoenix. And when I talked to Andy, they were holding their county fair, if you can call it that. It wasn't for real. It was done by television. 4-H, FFA, and livestock exhibitors shot video of the animals they had planned to lead into the judging ring. And then a judge, who I think was sitting in a room in California, looked at the videotapes and judged the animals to make their decisions. The county and state fairs could be a totally different experience for young people this year. So I would urge you, if you're in 4-H or FFA or a livestock exhibitor, to become a good TV camera person to get the best shots you can of your animals and then hope the judge likes what you have shot and will name your steer the Grand Champion Steer for 2020. Oh, and then there's a couple of personal notes. As the owner of a Cessna 210 airplane, I am sorry to see the cancellation of the world's largest airplane show at Oshkosh, Wisconsin in July. And even more personal, the annual Samuelson family reunion in Wisconsin has been postponed until next year. I hope I will still be around for that. My thoughts on Samuelson Says. 
It's a presentation of the Nexstar Media Group, and yes, I do plan on being around for that family reunion a year from now, and uh, I hope we can get back to a normal schedule for the FFA conventions and the county and state fairs and all of the other events, because uh, one of my favorites, the Harvard Milk Day celebration, which normally takes place the first weekend of June Dairy Month, that has already been posted postponed to October. So the Harvard Milk Day celebration will be a few months later this year than it normally would be. But we can make our arrangements and our schedules to fit whatever is going to happen, and we will get it done. We're at 24 minutes before 6 o'clock here on this Saturday morning show, and we're going to check in with uh, Mike Pearson for a look at our market activity, and we'll do that when we continue on the Saturday morning show. To help us make sense of the weather and how that's impacting the markets, we're joined now by Ted Seifert, the chief market strategist from Zener Ag Hedge. Ted, thanks for taking the time to join us this week. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. You know, the big story, it has seemed, in the corn market has been the pace of planting progress. As we look at this new crop, 51% planted as of last Monday. Do you expect that to be considerably higher as we look at uh, Monday's report, or do you think these sporadic rainfalls have slowed things down a little bit? Well, I think we've slowed things down a little bit, but either way, I mean, this is uh, one of the 50 fastest planting seasons we've had and that's i mean rolling along we've seen that pressure the corn market the last two mondays have been under a pretty significant amount of pressure because of the anticipated fast place pace of planting which has realized on the afternoon reports uh, but a lot of times we put our spring lows in between 40 and 60 percent planted and we're right there right now now looking forward at the weather as we've talked about there's some cold temperatures in there mm-hmm. we're a little bit concerned about that I think the pace will start to slow down at this point. So, yeah, I think it might be time to start to add a little bit of a weather premium. The other thing is soybeans. You know, when we, we've seen in the past, when we really get rolling on corn, we're a lot more likely to get to the intended acreage amount for corn. Now, I still think 97 million acres of corn is a big stretch. Okay. But maybe we're getting closer to that. But... I think it would be at the expense of soybean acres because I really don't see 180.5 million acres of row crops combined. That would be a record. This doesn't seem like the climate where we would set a record for that, especially with the PP acres that we're going to see in the Dakotas. That's true. They still are seeing substantial rainfall, and a lot of folks are going to be taking uh, PP. Ted, as you look ahead this next week, we do have a new supply and demand estimate coming out from USDA. We're anticipating bigger carryouts than we had seen for the past few years. Walk us through your numbers. On the corn side, what's your target for USDA? SDA's uh, uh, total carryout. Yeah, so we're we're one of the more aggressive ones just because in this climate I have a really hard time being optimistic about demand for next year and I know that I have to use the USDA's planting intentions number and their trend line yields so the supply side is bigger than what I think it's going to be as well. But I'm at a 3.5, just slightly over a 3.5 billion bushel carryover for corn. It's a very big number. Surprisingly though, I, I just looked at the trade guesses before coming in. Uh, it's not the highest guess out there. It's actually not far off the, the average, maybe a little bit higher than the average. So we are bracing for some really big numbers. I would like to say this, though. I think those numbers are going to come down substantially into next year because I think things are going to be a lot better from an export perspective, from an ethanol perspective. I don't think supply is going to be quite as big or production is going to be quite as big. So ultimately, I think we see that number walk back more than a billion bushels. But 
to start off with, we're going to be looking at a very large corn carryover number. Could be some continued pressure then on the December contract. Yeah, there, that's, that's certainly a possibility, but I think that doesn't come until after we really know what kind of crop we have. Keep in mind, we still have to grow this crop. Mm-hmm. There are always some sort of weather concerns that pop up between now and, say, July. But after July, if things look really good, wow, the fall harvest lows could be really rather low if things haven't changed on a demand front. And again, we're looking at a really nice crop. You mentioned the large carryout potentially coming in the corn market. Are you mm-hmm. seeing a similar number play out on the soybean side? Yeah, Mike, you know, it's a big number, but it's not nearly as big as some of the numbers that we've seen in the past. And, and actually, relatively speaking, it's fairly tight, especially if you consider the idea that maybe soybean acreage might be coming down. And who knows what we'll see for yield this year. So we're at a 580 million bushel carryover for new crop soybeans. That's actually quite a bit above what the average trade guesses mm-hmm. are. Uh, So the perception is that we can have a relatively tight soybean carryover next year. And if China comes in, starts buying aggressively, or something happens with the South American crop, we could really run out of soybeans. So soybeans, once again, have the potential to be the big story here for this year and next marketing year as well. We'll see what happens. You know, I'm optimistic the demand's going to come back. I'm optimistic that China is going to try to make good on this phase one trade deal because of the black eye that they've had with the coronavirus. They need to get going and need to get going soon, so we'll see. I I could be kind of excited about soybeans. Does your ending stocks figure include purchases from China to fulfill that phase one agreement? Nothing above and beyond what we have seen so far. Really, a very slow pace. There's a lot of room for upside potential for more export sales to China in my balance sheet. All right. Well, speaking of export sales to China, we have seen them step into the market buying pork. And uh, that is probably going to continue, assuming this trade war stays off the camera, but Ted, livestock markets have been beaten up, and finally it seemed like maybe we're, we're finding a turning point here this last week. When you look at the cattle markets first and foremost, where do you see us going from here? Well, and first of all, the export sales to China of pork, that's also assuming that we have pork to sell them, so that's a big question mark going forward. But as far as the cattle market is concerned, you know, on Wednesday we saw a really nice turnaround and a limit up move late in the day. Coming from comments from Sonny Perdue and President Trump saying that in the next week to 10 days, we are going to have all of these packer plants facilities up and running once again. Last week, we, we enacted the Defense Production Act, which takes a lot of liability off the table for these guys. They can't be sued by their workers or people that go to the grocery store and feel like they got coronavirus from a package, for example. So fear and money are the two main motivating factors. We take the fear off the table to allow these guys to go out and produce, uh, and we take record profit margins to offer them to go out and bring that production back. And I think that production will come back online really very quickly. So I'm optimistic that cattle prices have quite a bit of upside potential from where we're at. I think hog prices have quite a bit of upside potential from where we're at. I think we are now seeing that turn. I do think we're going to start getting these and keeping these facilities open once again. So I'm really rather optimistic on what livestock futures can do from here. Well, let's talk a timeline. If it's week, 10 days, we get things back up and running. How soon until we get back current in your mind? Do you think we're going to have to wait until mid-summer before we start to see prices return to where they should be? Yeah, it might take a month or two to get current. But listen, we we trade futures, not today's. So while we see a big steep discount to cash markets at the moment, Mm -hmm. well, if we start to really reopen and we're anticipating getting current, we could actually go to a premium uh, to cash at some point. So to me, there's there's a lot of upside potential on the board. It might take cash a little bit longer to get current, but we'll see. Thanks, Ted. Always appreciate your insight. It's Ted Seifert, Chief Market Strategist with Zaner Ag Hedge in Chicago.
It's a cool morning over much of the Midwest. There's probably some frost on the cars, some frost on the roofs. And uh, right now, my thermometer outside my studios in Huntley, Illinois, says 28 degrees. That's above zero. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of a chilly morning, but I think we're going to have a pleasant day. The uh, conversation that Mike had with uh, Ted focused on the meatpacking facilities, and uh, I got a list yesterday from the Department of Agriculture on the meatpacking processing facilities that either opened on Friday or will be opening this week. It's quite a list, really. Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue applauded the safe reopening of the infrastructure meatpacking facilities across the United States because these meatpacking facilities have resumed or plan to resume operations this week. And uh, apparently they've been working hard and managed to get the Senate done on those meatpacking facilities so they can reopen in a safe way to ensure that America's producers and ranchers will be able to bring their product to market. And the uh, secretary said, I want to thank the patriotic and heroic meatpacking facility workers who are returning to work this week so the millions of Americans who depend on them for food security can continue to do so. Quite a list of meat processing plants as well. Let me go through them uh, quickly. First of all, uh, the Tyson plant uh, in Perry, Iowa, doing pork. Tyson plant in Waterloo, Iowa, processing pork. The Tyson plant in Logansport, Indiana, with a pork situation. The Tyson plant at Robards, Kentucky, where they process poultry, and Tyson plant at Portland, Maine. They do further processing on meat products there. And the Tyson plant in Pasco, Washington, where they do beef. Tyson plant in Dakota City, Nebraska, with beef. The Aurora packing plant in Aurora, where they process beef. JBS US Green Bay. Wisconsin, they process beef. JBS USA, Worthington, Minnesota, where they do pork. Smithfield in Monmouth, Illinois, where they do pork. Smithfield at Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And a couple more at the uh, bottom of the list. Indiana Packers in Indiana, where they process pork. And Genio Turkey Store in Wilmer, Minnesota, where they do poultry. And so uh, CDC and OSHA have put out guidance for plans to implement to help ensure that employee safety to reopen plants or to continue to operate those uh, still open. Under the executive order and the authority of the Defense Production Act, USDA will work with meat processing facilities to affirm they will operate in accordance with the guidance provided by the CDC and OSHA. So we are getting meat processing plants back online this week. They've done a lot of work to make sure those plants have been sanitized, and hopefully the incidence of COVID-19 will begin to drop at those meat processing plants. 
And nine and a half minutes before six o'clock here on the Saturday morning show. And this week we bring back a feature that we had for you last summer during the growing season. And uh, for that, I'm going to call on Max Armstrong. Max? Well, Orion, we're going to be visiting over the next few weeks with folks from BASF to keep track of what's going on out of the fields. And Jody Bow is a technical service representative with BASF covering right here in this region, northern Illinois and the southern part of Wisconsin. Uh, Jody, first of all, as you've been going out down those roads, highways and byways, what are you seeing in the fields at this moment? Uh, how's our uh, pace of progress here in this new season, pace of planting? So compared to 2019, things are going in the ground very quickly. Um, I have been amazed at how quickly things have been going in. Um, even in southern Wisconsin, soybeans are already in the ground, and I'd say a lot of people are, are finished planting. Um, and same thing for northern Illinois. And as you move farther north into Wisconsin, um, as you move up farther to, like, say, Eau Claire from Madison, things are a little bit farther behind, um, still not done with spring tillage or nitrogen applications, but um, it's been a lot colder up there, and they've got, I think, some more rain up that, in that area, too. But overall, it's amazing how quickly things have been put in the ground this year compared to last year. Yeah, that was such a chore a year ago. Would you say that some of your growers uh, moved soybeans to the front burner a little bit in terms of early planting this year? Yes, I think so. That's that's for sure. Um I even have some folks that are in northern Wisconsin, and they got the first planting window the first week of April, and they decided to put soybeans in. So I think this year folks looked at, all right, I've got a planting window. It may not be optimum for corn, but I know that I want to get in the ground what I can. And so folks have pushed soybeans up into some of those earlier planting times um, so that they could prevent things happening like they did in 2019. Depending on how advanced they are, some growers may be out there walking the fields checking for damage next week with the uh, temperature possibilities. Yes, for sure. I mean, that's that's got me worried, too. Um, it's amazing how much the weather has swung this spring so far. And this cold snap is, is definitely a concern, and I hope people are out going to check on what's, what's happening on the field. Weeds seem to thrive in about all conditions, or at least that's the perception we get many times. What are you seeing in terms of weed pressures already? Oh, absolutely. So even at the end of March and beginning of April, I started to see common lambs quarter and giant ragweed come up. Um, so specifically, um, we've got a site up in northern Illinois near DeKalb, Illinois, and giant ragweed was up April 1st. And <laughs> since that, it's put on its first true leaves, second true leaves, and it's it's going strong. And same thing uh, in here in southern Wisconsin, we're starting to see red root pigweed. Um, there's some reports that water hemp is already up, um, which makes sense given how um, warm things have been so far this spring. So even though, you know, you might look out into a field and not see so much um, green in the field, those weeds, those small cotyledons, they're there. Those weed seedlings are there. Um, and they they're only going to keep growing. Be ready to address them. Don't get behind, I guess, is uh, some good advice, isn't it? Absolutely. So one of my favorite teachings that I kept from grad school is um, a saying called, give weeds the finger. And I don't mean that in any vulgar way. What I mean is make sure we're getting out there and controlling weeds before they get taller than your finger. And that's about the size of a soda can um, or about 
three inches. And so even though, again, you look under the field and we don't see anything green, as you go out and scout, you're going to see those those seedlings come up. And as they get on more leaves, they're going to grow even faster. So it's critical that we're controlling them when they're still small. Good advice, memorable advice, and uh, we'll carry that with us. Thanks, Jody. We'll check in with you again in a couple of weeks here. Sounds great. Thank you so much for the time today. Jody Bow, Technical Service Representative with BASF. Well, the sun is making an appearance here in the northwest suburbs. It's beginning to shine brightly. Uh, still frost out there, of course, so we hope that you covered your plants. And as Jim Fazell said earlier, don't use plastic laundry bags or anything made of plastic to cover plants to avoid frost damage. Use cloth, old bed sheets. As a matter of fact, my wife on her tomato plant has covered it with a pillowcase. So that should help keep the plant growing and doing what we want it to do. The uh, markets uh, yesterday uh, to end the week, pretty good at the Chicago Board of Trade. The July wheat contract gained a half cent yesterday to close at $5.23 a bushel. July corn was up one and three quarter cents at three nineteen and three quarters. And the July soybean contract gained six and a quarter cents to end at $8.50 and a half cents a bushel. And uh, some of that uh, grain strength coming from some Chinese purchases again. Not quite as good on the livestock complex, though. The uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange prices on June lean hog contracts uh, down $2.22 a hundredweight. The June live cattle, on the other hand, gained a dollar thirty-five cents yesterday, and they ended at ninety-five dollars thirty-two cents a hundredweight. But the uh, May feeder cattle contract dropped two dollars fifty-two cents a hundredweight to end the week at a hundred twenty-seven dollars and seventy-five cents. But the unusual times continue as far as agriculture and just about everything else we do is concerned. So uh, we'll be putting up with that again this week and trying to figure out markets. How do you get the huge unemployment number that you got on Wall Street yesterday and still end the market higher? As I said, I'm learning a lot or at least uh, finding out a lot about what impacts the markets, and we'll share that with you next week. But before then, let me thank Bob Ferguson, our engineer, for doing the good work he does, and thank you for listening to the Saturday Morning Show. Orion Samuelson keeps you connected to the world of business and agriculture on WGN. Hear his reports weekday mornings on the Steve Cochran Show and during the noon hour on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Plus, catch Orion and Max on Saturday mornings at 5 a.m. only on Chicago's WGN Radio 720.